It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Nathan Johnson. Well, welcome to another Daily Thunder. Behind me is the tell of Bet Shan, and it would be the place where Saul and Jonathan's bodies were hung after the big battle with the Philistines on Mount Goboa. So here is my teaching session from the top of the tell about Bet Shan. A uh, couple of things really quick in just terms of where you're at. Uh, this tell, and it'll look more like a tell once we go down it, but this tell has 19 civilizations. Uh, so there's 19 layers in the civilization, which is pretty amazing. Uh, the last of which was in 586 when Babylon came in and completely destroyed uh, the tell. And as I mentioned before, there are three key things that every town or civilization needs to have in order to function. Uh, one is water. And again, if you just look out, we have the Jordan River not far from here. Uh, we have the Gideon Springs not far from here. We have the, the river down the valley. So there's tons of water options, right? You need agriculture, you need planting. And if you just even look around, you just start to notice how much agriculture is around. And then you also need a defense location. And I don't know if you recognize this, but you're on quite a high location. So if someone's going to try to take the town, they have to come up a very steep slope. So this is a great location in terms of just uh, strategic uh, civilization kind of stuff. What's also interesting is that uh, Bethshun is at the crossroads of two major roads. Uh, One, you have the King's Highway going north and south, and then you have the east-west road. So you kind of have this great intersection. And during the time of Jesus, this was the... uh, the capital of the Decapolis. So, of course, that whole area that we were encamped in and stayed in the hotel, right? All those 10 cities. This was considered the capital of that Decapolis area that Jesus was preaching through when we were at the uh, Sea of Galilee. So, with that kind of as a, maybe an understanding, I want you to flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 31. And to almost set up the story, I want to kind of give you a couple pieces really quick. Uh, one, if you go back to early Saul's reign, you remember Samuel, the prophet, comes to Saul and says, Saul, um, the word of the Lord for you is, hey, you are to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And I want you to utterly defeat them. I want you to kill every man and woman and child and animal. And again, we look at those kind of stories and we're like, what on earth is God doing? Like, why, why would God have that kind of a command? And again, it's important as Christians that we look at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus because God has not changed, Right. He's not just asking for genocide. There, there's a specific concept in the middle of this. And almost even set that up, maybe if I can just give you one more quick background. The Amalekites throughout Scripture, it's really fascinating. But the Amalekites is a picture of the flesh. And if you hang around Ellerslie at all, you know that we're constantly talking about this, this tension between flesh and spirit. Flesh and spirit. And it's interesting that the Amalekites were descendants of Esau. And Esau is a phenomenal picture of the flesh. So you have Esau and Jacob. Of course, Jacob gets the birthright. And Esau becomes a picture of the flesh. In fact, over and over and over throughout Scripture, Esau just becomes a symbol of the flesh. So it's interesting that here God comes through Samuel, talks to Saul, and says, I want you to utterly destroy the Amalekites, the flesh. And so what does Saul do? He goes and in in, uh, 1 Samuel 15, goes in to destroy the Amalekites. He comes back and Samuel meets him and Samuel goes, "Um, oh, sorry, Uh, Saul says, hey, blessed are you the Lord. I, I fulfilled the commandment. Of course, Samuel in his great announcement says, well, if you, if you obeyed, what is the bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? Remember this? And of course, Saul goes, well, <laughs> I mean, we obeyed, 
but we kept the best of the sheep and the goats for sacrifice, obviously for sacrifice. And we kept King Agag alive. Why? Because, hey, we need a strategic position in case more Malachites come. And of course, Samuel responds by saying, obedience is better than sacrifice. And there's an interesting principle in this for Saul, that the moment you keep the flesh alive in your life, it will come back to kill you. That as a, especially as a Christian, flesh is not to have a position in your life. And if you say, well, yeah, but God gave me my singing voice and I'm going to use it for his glory. And, and hey, it's going to be an offering. It's going to be a sacrifice unto him. Do you realize? Yes, God may give you your singing voice, but it must be submitted. It must be given over and surrendered to Jesus Christ. And that you are not to live out of your flesh. You're to live by the spirit. There's a phenomenal tension in scripture with that. So now we get to the end of Saul's life. And it's interesting that the Philistines, if you remember from our very first day, uh, when we were at Beth Shemesh, right, we were talking about the Philistines, we were, we were looking at the Valley of Elah and David and Goliath. You realize that here is the Philistines on the coast, and they have made their way all the way up to the mountains of Gilboa, right over here. You realize they have really pressed inland. Quite, I mean, it's, this is the Jordan River. They have pressed all the way from the coast, basically to the Jordan River. Now, Saul and his sons are over on Mount Gilboa, and they are fighting in this battle. Now, I want you to see 1 Samuel 31 in light of the geography, because you can see everything in this story from this one location. Okay, this is amazing. Uh, 1 Samuel 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and Israel's fighting men fled before the Philistines, and they fled slain on Mount Goboa, right over there. Okay, that, that mountain. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed his sons. The battle was heavy against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was very afraid. Therefore Saul took his sword and fell upon it. Now it's interesting, as we get into chapter 2, we kind of get some more of the backstory, and we are told that this Amalekite shows up, and Saul sees the Amalekite and says, Hey, who are you? And the man says, well, I'm an Amalekite. And Saul says, come here, come here, come here. Help me fall upon my sword so that my enemies cannot say they killed Saul. Now, I don't know if you just see a thought here, but it's interesting that God commanded Saul to kill and utterly destroy the Amalekites, which is a picture of the flesh. But Saul kept back a part of that and says, no, no, no I'm going to keep the best for sacrifice, quote unquote. And what ends up happening at the end of Saul's life? He looks at the one that he was commanded to kill, and he actually sees him not as an enemy. He sees him as a friend. And he says, hey, come over here and help me kill myself. And so Saul dies upon his sword. Isn't that a crazy thought? That the moment we allow flesh, any ounce in our life, it will come back to destroy us. It will come back to kill us. Uh, so that's in chapter 2, verse 1. Or uh, chapter 2, chapter 2 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, so verse 6 again. Uh, so Saul died with his three sons and his armor bearer together with all his men on that same day. When Israel's fighting men who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan. So right behind us here. <clears throat> saw that Israel's fighting men had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned the cities and fled. So the Philistines came and lived in them. Verse 8, the following day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons on Mount Goboa. 
They cut off his head, they stripped his armor, and they sent them into the land of the Philistines round about to make it known in the house of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bet-Shean. So if you can imagine, uh, here we are at the top of the tell. There's this wall going around it. And the Philistines take the bodies of Saul and Jonathan and the other sons, and they bring them up, and they really hang the bodies. Obviously, they had severed the heads, but they, they hung the bodies up upon the wall. <clears throat> uh, verse 11. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, which, by the way, is that mountain range over there. Is that correct, Dan? Is that whole area? Uh, so when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard that the Phil- what, the, what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night, and they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came down to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they mourned and they fasted for seven days. Right here. And I think this is just a, an amazing picture of the fact that when we allow flesh to remain, do you realize it, come back, it comes back to kill us? There's this interesting thought that here is Saul, and because he did not keep the borders of his land, the Philistines were allowed to invade this far. And if you want even another thought, perhaps for your life, it's interesting as you turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, David learns of the death of Saul, who you understand has been tracking him down and trying to kill him. There, were, I think if I remember correctly, there was over 31 uh, assassination attempts on, on David's life from Saul. So here's been David, We've been, he's been running around. Of course, he was up in Engedi, which we were at earlier. And so he's, he's hiding from Saul, all this kind of stuff. And you realize that Saul, who is trying to kill David, the moment that David, sorry, the moment that Saul dies and David hears of it, what does David do? Well, at the end of chapter one, he mourns, he weeps. And in fact, he writes a psalm of lament for Saul. It's an interesting thought for our enemies, isn't it? But if I may take it one more step further, I just want to contrast that with another death in David's life that is quite dramatically different. Uh, tomorrow we're going to be down in Jerusalem, and it's interesting that if you go down to the city of David, you realize David's up on the rooftop one night. He's supposed to be off at battle, but instead he's up on the rooftop, and of course he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and he gets Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to come over back from the battle. It says, hey, why don't, you, why don't you relax and why don't you go spend some time with your wife? And of course, Uriah doesn't do that. He just keeps sleeping in the court. So David writes the scroll and rolls it up and hands it to Uriah and says, hey, give this to Joab, the commander. And Uriah marches back and it says, hey, put Uriah at the front lines. And Uriah dies. And it's interesting that when Joab sends a report back to David about Uriah, do you know what David's response is? Well... The sword devours one as it devours another. In other words, no big deal. Hey, no pressure. Hey, just, hey, throw this off. Hey, don't let this stress you out. Now, I want you to see the contrast. Saul is the bitter enemy of David. Yes, the Lord's anointed, but the bitter enemy. And the moment that Saul dies, David weeps, he mourns, he laments, and writes a psalm. Do you know who Uriah was? Uriah wasn't just the husband of Bathsheba. Uriah was one of David's best friends. That when you look at the, the, the line of the mighty men of David, he had 33 close mighty valiant men who fought side by side with David. And one of the 33 valiant mighty men of David was Uriah. 
There is no doubt in my mind that when Bathsheba came into the courts and he found out it was Bathsheba, David knew exactly who she was. That David probably had Uriah and Bathsheba over for dinner countless times. Why? Because they were, hey, they were tight. And isn't it a sad reality that when sin creeps into your life, when the flesh begins to take control of David's life, it's interesting what began to stir and mourn his heart several years before with the death of Saul in this location. Here's his best friend who dies upon the battlefield and David's response is, well, no big deal. The sword devours the one just like it devours another. Could I freshly encourage you? Don't allow the flesh to have a voice. Don't give it a single inch in your life. Hey, hey do not allow sin in the flesh to have even a voice in your life because the moment it has any position, I promise you, it's gonna grow and grow. It's gonna damper your spiritual life and it's gonna bring you to the point where you may not even realize it, but you're gonna look at your enemy and see your enemy as a friend and you're gonna ask your friend, the Amalekite, to help you fall upon your sword. Or it's gonna so desensitize you to the realities of life that you're gonna actually look at your best friend and say, eh, not a big deal. At least he's gotten rid of and now I can live in my sin. Don't trifle with sin. As John Stamm, the great missionary friend of Hudson Taylor, used to write, he said, there's seven steps upward and seven steps downward. And if you wanna progress in your spiritual life, the very first step upward is taking sin seriously. He says, hey, if you wanna go downward, and you understand it's a lot easier to go down than it is up. It is a slippery road downward into the pits of darkness and hell. He says, the first step downward is to begin to take sin lightly. So if I could just encourage you, don't take sin lightly. Do not trifle, don't allow it a voice in your life. I think there's just an amazing picture here at Bet Shan of that reality, recognizing all the stuff that was happening. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.